Hello and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. And welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've got another exciting episode where we are collaborating with the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy. Jen, what is the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy? I know I asked you last time, you did such a great job uh, just saying something off the cuff. So you can go two for two. The Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy is a collection of articles about teaching music theory it is a fully open resource. You don't have to pay for access to that journal. It's really great. And it's really an excellent resource. Like if you're someone who is trying to improve your teaching or just keep everything fresh, it's the right place to go. Absolutely. Wow. Jen, you should be <laughs> should be on like NPR or something where you have to like read those things. I should have a podcast. Is that what you're saying? You have a podcast, <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But so uh, thank you again, all the fine folks at the journal. So uh, Rebecca Jemian, David Thurmeyer, Lisa Hogue, Daniel Stevens, the whole a whole editorial board, um, Stephen Lates, Jennifer Sodgrass, all of you folks um, for all the great work that you do um, in supporting pedagogy in music theory. So today is our second episode uh, where we are diving into an article from an upcoming, from the upcoming journal. And I'm trying to find the title page here, but my pages are out of order. Let me get it here. Article we're looking at is called Student Driven Music Theory, How the Question Formulation Technique Can Promote Agency, Engagement, and Curiosity. And this is a paper that was co-authored by two colleagues at the University of Delaware, Philip Duker and Patricia Burns, and we get to talk to both of them. So it's a great conversation. Uh, Before we get to the conversation, let's read a little bit about our guests. So we'll start with uh, Patricia. Okay, so Patricia Burt is an assistant professor at the University of Delaware, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate music theory classes. Her recent interests in the field of music theory pedagogy include the use of games in the theory core, approaches to large-scale design in first-semester theory classes, and ungrading the classroom. Her other primary research area has to do with the study of spatial design and the role it plays in creating musical tension and articulating form. When not in the classroom or her office, she enjoys tinkering with recipes in the kitchen. She and I have that in common. Or looking for the next mountain to hike. And Philip Duker is Associate Professor of Music at the University of Delaware, where he researches pedagogy, analytical systems, and repetition in 20th century music. He has published a handful of articles and book chapters on pedagogy, most recently in the Rutledge Companions to Music Theory Pedagogy and Aural Skills Pedagogy. He served as the lead organizer for Engaging Students, Essays in Music Pedagogy, from 2014 to 2020, and is currently director of the Institute for Transforming University Education at the University of Delaware. Adding to this evidence that he has fallen into the trap of service, 
Phil was awarded the 2021 SMT Volunteer of the Year Award for his work as chair of the IT slash networking committee. I think another thing that this process does is it normalizes asking questions. So one of the steps in the QFT is you ask as many questions as possible and you write every single question down and you don't judge the question. And the idea is just like throw all these questions down the paper. And then later on, you can figure out which questions, you know, seem like really interesting questions. But it gets students in the habit of actually asking questions. I think students are so used to um, just taking in information. <laughs> But like you, you get questions that are just like really deep and really awesome questions that like, you know, you normally don't have time to talk about in a theory course because you're so focused on skill development and getting students facility with those skills. But just taking some time to say like, you know, this is a really important question and even taking five minutes to survey some of the thoughts and ideas you have about it can be can be really helpful for students to contextualize the kind of things you do. Phil and Patricia, we are so excited to have you on the podcast uh, to talk with you about your uh, new article that's coming out in JMTP. And so this is coming out in the end of December. So in January, this will be coming out. And so we're thrilled to talk with you about your article. Um, we have a lot of questions, or I have a lot of questions. I always have a lot of questions. But um, just this question formulation technique, I think, is such a possibly transformative way of thinking about engaging with students. And so we're thrilled to talk to you about that. Uh, but before we get into it, uh, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about how they got into music theory. And uh, maybe we can open up this conversation by um, adding on the additional question, because it's the holidays, of how do you answer your great aunt Marva at the holiday dinner table of, well, what do you do for a living? What what do you do? So <laughs> maybe can we can start by doing that because we're all going to be answering those random questions and answering music theory and getting those quizzical looks. So whichever one of you wants to start. I will start first. Yeah. Um, so my pathway to pursuing music theory was uh, the scenic route. I started actually my undergraduate degree. I started out as an engineer and then I switched to pre-med and my senior year, I was not enjoying what I was doing. And I um, don't really like being around sick uh, people, people with colds. <laughs> so, I mean, we have that problem anyway in music theory. But um, and I decided I think maybe being a doctor isn't really going to be for me. So I ran into a mentor who said, if um, money didn't matter and you could do anything you wanted for eight hours a day, what would you do? And I said, music. But it was unclear, you know, exactly what that was going to mean. So I took a year off after finishing my first degree, which ended up being in psychology. And then I ended up uh, going into a second bachelor's in voice performance, but started practicing a lot more piano than voice. So I switched over to piano performance <laughs> and um, ended up doing a master's in piano performance as well. And it was actually during my master's that I had this incredible class, which actually connects a little bit to our topic for today. I had this incredible professor um, who was teaching a post-tonal class um, music after 1945. And it was sort of musicology and theory together. And um, he was a composer. And every class that I came into was like a composition. You never were really sure what you were going to get when you came in. Um, and I remember there's this one time he was doing a class on the golden mean and, um, and proportion in music. And 
it turned out we didn't know about this until the very end of the class. But one of the pieces where we were talking about that the climax happens, that the golden mean actually had happened at the golden mean of the class period. So... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and midway through the class, after the midterm, he said he had always described post-tonal music as like a long hallway or music of the 20th century, essentially, as a long hallway with lots and lots of doors. Mm-hmm. And so at the midterm, he said... I've prepared this class to go in either of two directions. Um, you all are going to make the decision about how we're going to proceed. He's like, I have all of the materials prepared. Either we can go back and revisit the doors from the first half of class or and, and go into those styles in more depth, or we can continue down the hallway and open some more doors. But this is completely up to you as a class and we're going to vote on it. So the students actually having some say in terms of how the class actually went. And so it was that class where I was so excited by the way he was teaching the class. Mm -hmm. And it actually, I think it made me more excited about the kind of music we were listening to, which had actually quite honestly been difficult for me in the, in my twenties. And so I think, I I don't know if I mentioned, I was in my mid thirties by the time I was actually becoming a music theorist. (laughs) So um, yeah, so we, I started thinking about what I could do that would be like that. And I thought, well, my love of math and and analysis and my interest in music and my keyboard skills all sort of combined nicely to pursue music theory. And um, I love teaching. And so that's the direction I went in. And so when I described to my, uh, family members, what I do, um, I just tell them, I kind of work in the psychoanalysis of music. <laughs> like <laughs> what I do is I help students understand that the structure of the music they're listening to in part is what gives them the various kinds of experiences they have when they're listening to and performing music. <laughs> <laughs> That's I love great. that. All right. And and you, Philip. All right. So, yeah, I actually started my music. We're both kind of like outsiders in this way, I guess. So I started as a drummer, not a percussionist, notice, just a drummer. Like I played drums all through middle school and high school. And I was very into like um, like rock bands, improvisation, doing jazz and things like that. Um, And then when I got to college, um, I actually got a scholarship to go to University of Maryland, Baltimore County for philosophy. And so I was a double major in philosophy. And while I was there, I picked up music sort of along the way. And I'd always been interested in jazz and things like that. And kind of like just uh, this peculiar, like emotional effect you have in music. Like it's a very irrational thing. If you sort of step back and look at it, it's like, you know, I'm listening to these sounds and they make me feel things. And that was kind of like very, uh, very peculiar. So I wanted to dig into more of that. And so I was like, you know, I, I went into coming out of college. It's like, well, I love music and I love theories, you know, from philosophy. It's like, huh, I could put those two together. <laughs> and then I, um, I applied to graduate school at a number of places and ended up going to the University of Michigan, where my advisor was Kevin Corson, who, if you know uh, any of his work, he's almost like a philosopher <laughs> in general. He's done a lot of like critical thinking and things like that. So we hit it off pretty well right away. And then, uh, and yeah, that was kind of like how I how I navigated into the field of music theory. And then how do you explain that to uh, your uncle, Hal? 
at the yeah. Christmas dinner table? Yeah, it's a good question. So so oftentimes the people are like, music theory, what? What is that? It's like, well, what we do is we kind of provide lenses for people who would want to listen with uh, listen to and understand and perform different styles of music. So we have a variety of tools that we bring in that can kind of help you either you know perform or understand or compose in these various ways. That's yeah. great. That's great. And uh, most of the time, they don't understand half that either. They're just like, oh, okay, whatever. I'll just move on to like, <laughs> move on to more uh, mashed potatoes or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. They're surprised when you say you don't play thirty instruments. Right. <laughs> I don't know, Phil. Exactly. Phil, don't you just pass over um, some uh, a journal, the music theory spectrum, or something? <laughs> Just pass it, <laughs> pass it out of the table. Here's That's some right. light reading for you all tonight. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we all know you don't talk about religion, politics, or music theory at the dinner table. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we are here to talk with you about your particular paper that's coming out in in one of those journals, JMTP, um, entitled. This is the title that I have. Hopefully, this is still tight. This still the same title, or you can let me know if it's different. But it's called Student Driven Music Theory: How the Question Formulation Technique Can Promote Agency, Engagement, and Curiosity. So, first off, what is the question formulation technique. So Phil, I'm going to let you go with this one because you're the one who okay. introduced me to it. <laughs> okay, so the question formulation technique is a structured pedagogy that um, that encourages and promotes students to ask their questions about a given topic or subject matter. Um, so one of the benefits of it is it's, it's structured in ways that um, really allow students and encourage students to kind of think from various perspectives about things. Um, so it begins with this whole process of just generating as many questions as you possibly can come up with. And then only later do you start bringing a more critical lens and start refining those questions like which of these are more relevant, which of these are most important, and which of these are we going to focus on. But essentially, it's a way to get your students to come up with questions that you can then use to bring into your classes and, and, and drive learning. Did I miss anything, Patricia, you want to add? <laughs> no, no, I think that's great. <laughs> well, it's interesting because with both of your backgrounds, philosophy and psychology, I can see how this teaching technique would really appeal to you. Like as you were talking about your backgrounds, I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Um, in the article, you explore actually a couple of different ways that you've used the technique in your classroom, some case studies. Could you kind of walk us through some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of my favorite examples or one of my favorite QFTs was occurred in the first semester, no, the second semester of a diatonic theory uh, class. And we, it was fall of 2020 and we were all teaching online. <laughs> and so the QFT actually was really fantastic in terms of um, allowing students to be engaged while they're in an online environment um, and also allowed them to interact with one another in wonderful ways while we were all confined to our houses. Um, and this particular QFT, I had a couple of goals for it, but one of 
the patterns that I've noticed over my decade of teaching music theory is that if I ask an undergraduate music theory student to walk me through an analysis of a musical example, a lot of times the very first thing they do, and maybe all of you have had this experience too, the first thing they do is say, well, in the first measure, <laughs> we have a tonic triad. <laughs> Right. And then we have, and then we on get one chord. It starts on a one chord, <laughs> and then I get sort of a blow by blow um, account of every single Roman numeral that happens in the piece, often with all of the inversions, and hopefully they've thrown in a few cadences as well. And when they get to the end of that, they feel like they've actually um, analyzed the piece, and you know, and I understand it because they're learning these new ideas and they're learning um, new vocabulary and how to label things. And so I want to try to break that habit as quickly as possible or even help them not to develop that habit so that they learn pretty early on, oh, these are just labels. And analysis is actually like stepping back from those labels and starting to think about bigger questions. How is musical tension created? How is it resolved? How do we get closure? Um, uh, what other kinds of things? How do how is repetition and contrast working in this piece um how are expectations created are they being are are we are expectations being satisfied or are they being thwarted what's going on here those are the kinds of things that we all want our students to understand and that's why we're giving them these tools in the first place so this initial qft occurred after we had already been doing a lot of labeling of a piece we were working through is the We'd been working on two weeks on credential analysis and um, making bubble diagrams and labeling phrases, the melodies and phrases and things like that. And um, I had given, we were working on a rondo movement. And so I had given the students at separate points during this two week period, sections of the piece to analyze, but we hadn't really looked at the piece as a whole and they hadn't yet gotten to rondo form, at least in our theory curriculum at that point. And um, so I created this prompt that where I was asking them to ask as many questions as you can about this Rondo movement um, in light of this statement. And then I provided a statement that talks about the difference between description and analysis and that it's analysis that really helps us get at the essence of a piece. So this was really, and of course there was a lot of moaning and groaning when I told them that we we're gonna look at the same piece because they felt like they already knew everything about the piece. Um, but then when I got the reflections back after going through the whole process and then having them use some of the questions that they had generated as homework assignments, um, I got some reflections back that where the students really did, they were surprised at how much they actually didn't know mm -hmm. and that this helped them to delve deeper and uh, think about the piece in a different way. I'll chime in. There's so much to unpack there. I love it, first mm -hmm. off. But I will say that I've experienced exactly the same thing. And even my students will default to talking about harmony. I'm just thinking, mm -hmm. you know, when you say it starts off on a one chord and says, okay, then we're proceeding to the next measure. And I'm just like, well, you didn't talk about the meter. You know, you didn't talk about what was even playing the piece. For, you know what I mean? And it's just some things that they just blow over. So I'm like, I've created like some prompts, uh, not necessarily QFTs. And I really like this idea. And I, chances are, I'll probably go ahead and go with it next semester. But just questions about starting off like timbre, 
meter, you know, putting those things like very explicitly on like prompts when they're creating things or they're creating analyses, you know, so that they're not just glossing, glossing over everything, except for the fact that it starts on a one, you know, because I've oh, experienced that exact thing. And it's just so great what you're doing to get this uh, analysis. What is analysis? Oh, I love that. I really, really like it. Yeah, well, you're bringing up a really good point about that we're always starting with harmony. And for the most part, the majority of our students actually play melodic instruments or they play a percussion instrument, right, Phil? <laughs> so they're, right. you know, so they might be interested in other aspects of the piece, which are equally as interesting. And so this allows them to ask those questions and then pick those questions to actually explore during their in their homework assignment or in whatever kind of way you want to use the questions as you move forward um, with your unit. So I did have a lot of uh, students asking questions about, you know, phrase lengths or why are they using metric dissonance here? Or are the melodies in the different sections of this piece related in any kind of way? Mm -hmm. So all of those kinds of topics that um, when you're really focusing on harmony specifically, um, we just don't get enough time to really talk about those in the classroom. It's true. I was thinking as I read the article about how um, like the harmony problem that often they think that's what analysis is, is describing the harmony yeah. because we teach Roman numeral analysis and that's where they hear that word maybe first or most. And I just taught form analysis this fall and um, their first round of papers. When I handed them back, I said, man, you guys did a really tremendous job at, describing this music very well. And now what I want us to do is analyze it. And they all looked at me with a really puzzled expression, like, <laughs> what do you mean? I thought that's what I did, you know? And so we, we worked on that kind of across the whole semester, but I think that's one of the reasons why in upper level classes, we often encounter difficulty with writing about music and things like that, because in some ways, you know, our curriculum maybe even doesn't always give them the tools to think about music creatively or think about it from lots of different perspectives. Yeah, or even outside of music perspectives. Like right. you see, I, I will confess I'm a college basketball fan and they show at the end of the first half always first half analysis. And then it comes up with basically just a description of how many points people had and how many turnovers. And they got this team had 10 rebounds and this team had 12, you know, and I'm like, where was the analysis? That was just a statistical listing of things. You know what I mean? That was a people, description. You watch yeah. that, right. And you think, oh, that, that's analysis. Well, is it really or not? You know? It's interesting too, just the difference between um, audience level and analysis. When, like, when you beginning, like, when you're teaching music theory or music theory concepts to people in high school and things like that, like, good job, you identified the key. Like, that's that maybe is what functions as analysis. But then it's just realizing that there's these multiple layers that you can dig through and get beyond. And um, for me, like, yeah. So when we have the question about like. You know, when when some of our students are doing writing, like you know, like what counts, like what is an analytical observation, like what versus a description, and a lot of times it's about it's, it's asking them to sort of think about their audience and think about sort of like you know what would count as like a reasonable observation, what would count as something that's non-trivial, non-obvious for a given audience, and even just getting them to think about those things can be can be really productive, but. But yeah, the depth of analysis, like, you know, can, can you ever stop digging? Like, you can just dig that hole <laughs> all the way, right? True. <laughs> yeah, so true. 
Yeah, and all the the questions it seems that these students come up with that's so interesting to me because I'm I'm a composer as all my training was in composition. So when I listen to you talk about um, the ways of how, how you open it up with just these all these questions, everything is you know fair game, and then you focus that in. That reminds me of kind of how you can approach composition in a lot of ways. So like you're just you're starting from this blank canvas and you're just trying things out. You're not trying to judge your work, you're just trying to get stuff on the page. And then over time you refine your ideas, you know, through weeks and you know, revisions and things like that. And so you're kind of teaching these students to ask better questions, I guess, or just different questions. Um, and I love the fact that it is non-judgmental. It's just like, just get the questions out. Are you sometimes surprised at what these students come up with? Oh, absolutely. Like, uh, so, so you get delights from multiple angles. Like first, um, is the ones where they ask questions where you're like, yes, like this directly fits with my learning goals. I can totally bring this question to class and like drive the course as if I had come up with that question. And, and those kind of things are pretty awesome for a number of things. Firstly, because they so easily connect with your plan. You're like sort of pre-digested ideas about what you're going to talk about. But also they give this class this authenticity. Like you're investigating something that the students came up with. And that shift in ownership results in this tangible difference in how much they're going to engage with those questions. Mm -hmm. Like this isn't like, oh, Duker gave them another question. It's like, this is actually like, you know, Sebastian's question that he came up with or Genevieve's question that he came up with. So like, like these are students in the class that they can relate to. And they say like, oh, like this, like I remember they came up with that in a small group when we were talking. So it gives this this air of like, authenticity to to what you're actually doing and how you're exploring things and that level of student input is really empowering for many students the other side of thing that's kind of great um and patricia had uh, experience with this where they're kind of like questioning some of the foundational beliefs of a discipline but like you you get questions that are just like really deep and really awesome questions that like you know you normally don't have time to talk about in a theory course because you're so focused on skill development and getting students facility with those skills so so, um, but just taking some time to say like, you know, this is a really important question and even taking five minutes to survey some of the thoughts and ideas you have about it can be, can be really helpful for students to contextualize the kind of things you do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, there's, there's delights on many sides from what the <laughs> students come up with. Yeah. It's also really interesting to see what they don't ask because sometimes mm. you feel like you know the obvious question, it's gonna be this, and this is, and again, it's that sort of, this is my pre-digested idea of what I want the students <laughs> to get out of this course. And a lot of times it's so far off their radar because the question is just in a different kind of space than where the students actually are. And then that kind of explains um, that experience that I think probably a lot of us have is we talked about this topic and we sort of got up to the top level at the top of the mountain and the students seem to not really be with you anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there's just like a scaffolding, a few pieces of scaffolding that haven't quite been constructed yet for them to be able to think of those questions. So it's beyond <laughs> the horizon. Yeah, and that's such an important point. Like, like seeing what questions that students come up with really lets you survey kind of like the horizon of understanding, like how, mm -hmm. and, and also think what's like the horizon of relevance are, like what questions they feel are relevant to this prompt, what sort of 
what are some of the limits of how they're thinking about things and, and what are some of the things that are just completely outside of their sphere of concern? Um, and anytime a technique like this is tapping into that idea of like finding out what students are relevant, like those are hooks that can always lead to like more motivation, more enthusiasm and more engagement from your students. So it's, it's worthwhile to just even just get the survey, even if you decide like, you know, many of these questions aren't going where I want them to go. You at least like have a much better idea about where your students are coming from. Yeah, and I think that definitely influences when you are doing non-QFT sessions in your class, um, that it influences how you interact with them because you're getting to know them in a different way. And students, I think, really also respond very strongly when they feel that you have an interest in what's important to them. And they respond differently when you give them some choice about how they want to engage with the topic. It just creates a whole different level of trust. And one thing that when I was doing my introduction, maybe we can splice this in and like fix it later. But actually, I should reference like so we didn't come up with the the question formulation technique. Actually, it was um, there's there's two wonderful authors, Dan Rothstein and Luz Santana, who came up with this. And if you wanted to check out the book, it's called Make Just One Change. Um, and it's a fabulous read. And so credit to those authors for actually coming up with the question formulation technique that we've been using in our classes. And that's something from outside of, you know, music theory pedagogy, that's something just from education research and, and pedagogy research. And so we need to be doing those researching and things like that too, and, and engaging with these teaching techniques, things like that. Um, I just think it changes the whole uh, perspective of that teacher-student relationship. You're not the sage on the stage anymore. You're the guide on the side, you know, leading, leading that group along. And I would imagine that you might get more response from the students that maybe don't. You know, I was talking to a colleague just the other day about, you know, the, the handful of students in the front that always have the right answers, always, you know, they've got it, you're, they're tracking along and you sometimes forget that, oh, there's these other folks that aren't tracking, but they're not going to kind of voice those concerns. It seems like this type of uh, technique can help raise those voices up that uh, maybe not confident or aren't sure about kind of voicing those things in a normal class setting. Yeah, small groups in general are a wonderful way to diffuse that sort of tension and that sort of anxiety that many people have in public speaking. So anytime, like, I mean, before I was using QFT, just getting group, like turn to your partner, talk about this, like turn to a small group of three, talk about this. I think anytime you're doing that and asking students kind of explain in their own words what's going on or describe to other people how they're thinking, those are such valuable uses of time. Um, and, and we're gonna probably get to this later with this idea of efficiency and coverage and, and sort of quantity versus these things that take more time. Like if you think about learning in general and you look at some of the statistics about like what students retain from courses, it's it can be pretty dismal. Like lecture as an approach is really not so effective when it's uh, it's compared to sort of some of these other active learning techniques. Um, so so oftentimes, uh, anytime you can get your students like working in groups, talking with each other, explaining to each other how things work and things like that, that can be really, really effective use of class time. I think another thing that this process does is it normalizes asking questions. Mm. Um, it, it, 
I think a lot of times our students, I mean, there's different kinds of questions. There's like questions that guide research. And then there's also questions like I don't understand a thing. But even when students don't understand something that's going on, a lot of times they have a hard time articulating what it is that they don't Mm -hmm. understand. And so they don't even know the question to ask. So by having, so one of the steps in the QFT is you ask as many questions as possible and you write every single question down and you don't judge the question. And the idea is just like throw all these questions down the paper. And then later on, you can figure out which questions, you know, seem like really interesting questions, but it gets students in the habit of actually asking questions. I think students are so used to, um, just taking in information yeah. and answering questions. You have in the paper, it's like a, the, the banker metaphor. Like they're. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, uh, so that's actually from Paulo Freira, the um, Brazilian educator, who talked about the banking model of education. Yeah, this idea right. that like our knowledge is like this deposit that we sort of invest in our <laughs> students' minds. Yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot more to that that he goes into. But um, but in general, it's just this idea of education as something that's very passive, like that we have the content and we must deliver it to our students. Versus um, constructivist approaches, which often talk about you know knowledge is something that's built and that the students have to be part of that construction process. Like you can provide environments for learning, but it's the students who have to put things together in ways that make sense for them in order to get to, to these places of meaningful understanding and meaningful learning. Yeah. Well, this is kind of circling around to the idea of efficiency, so to speak, but both of you, as you were talking, mentioned like your learning goals for the day or learning outcomes that you were hoping to achieve. And one of the things I really appreciated in the article is you mentioning that using this technique means giving up some sort of autonomy and, you know, opening the space up for you not being the center of what the students learn and experience about the music itself. And I thought that was a really valuable thing to point out because often we are kind of the, you know, the boss. <laughs> we we are the ones who know what needs to be covered and how and when and all of those things. And I think, some of the best moments I've had in teaching have come when we've talked about things that I had no plan for us to talk about that day. Um, that Those are often the best discussions that we have. So I just appreciated that you mentioned that, that feeling, maybe a feeling of insecurity of kind of releasing the idea of efficiency and letting yeah, the students yeah. run it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, Paul mentioned before this this sort of dichotomy that's often put up between like the guide on the side versus the sage on the stage. Mm-hmm. I have a colleague in uh, biologic or biology and mathematics, John Junk, who, who likes to say, "Well, you know, I, you can also be a meddler in the middle. So like, you don't have to completely, <laughs> you know, give up all your autonomy to lecture or like do some of these like micro interventions. But you can also kind of like give students enough things that they're digging in it, and then walk around and like meddle with mm-hmm. what they're doing, like sort of mm-hmm. make sure they're on." track make sure they're thinking about things that you want you want them to sort of um, work about or work on so yeah no it's it's great the other fascinating thing is sometimes you know when you when you're giving up your own like this is the this is what i know and this is what i think you should know about what i know um the students they're coming they all have different backgrounds they're coming in some of them you know love making beats and so they have experience like they the students have all different kinds of experiences that i don't have and so sometimes they'll come with questions about whatever the prompt is and I actually really don't know the answer. And so you just have to be okay with not knowing. And then that also sort of normalizes not knowing. So, I mean, not knowing can be sort of vulnerable. And I think students feel um, like they're in a vulnerable position when they're in a class and they don't yet know the material. 
And this allows you to be vulnerable right alongside with them. And I think that really is, that creates a really great space for learning to take place. Mm-hmm. I love that meddler in the middle. Middle, I, <laughs> I'm definitely going to steal that. That's so good. Uh, the second uh, case study uh, that on, in the paper is dealing with, I believe, uh, like post-tonal music. And I really resonated with this mm-hmm. uh, because I've kind of done... I've done this a little bit and I want to now explore this more, but oftentimes in uh, theory four, you know, we start looking at, you know, atonal music or 12 tonal music. And I started um, a couple years ago looking at a score and just asking students, what do you think this piece sounds like? Like looking at a Weber and string quartet and be like, what do you think this sounds like? You know, is it fast? Is it slow? Is it loud? Is it soft? What do some of these German words mean? What are these techniques? You know, is it sound dissonant, constant, you know, or somewhere in between, right? And and so we just ask all these questions, which now I know is part of the QFT. Um, and, and it would kind of change the posture that the students have towards that piece, because then when we finally listen to it, they're kind of coming at it as, well, let's see if it proves my hypothesis on what this piece sounds like, rather than listening to the piece first. And then they're like, oh, this is very unusual. It's scary sounding. The posture is very different. Um, The posture of kind of openness and like anticipation is a lot better way of approaching new music. And and you mentioned this, Patricia, in your your class that you you took with um, your really um, informative or influential professor on, you know, 20th century music, how that change of perspective allows for students to uh, engage with music that they wouldn't normally feel comfortable with. So could we open up with, can you remind us what that prompt was? Because I really like that prompt. Something about music should be pleasant. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, so this was in a post-tonal class that I taught and the prompt was music should always be pleasant and entertaining to listen to. <laughs> that's such Which a is kind of Oh man, so many <laughs> students have that idea, right? And even if they don't know they have the idea, I mean, because this is one of the things like um, I remember the first time I heard like a piece of 20th century music, it was actually a free improv situation. So I saw these people kind of like just muddling about on stage. And this one guy seemed to have this huge ego. He would like move around and sort of like kick people off instruments to like fiddle on the instrument. I mean, it was a very weird scene and it's just a very different style of music making than anything I've been exposed to or experienced before. And I, I was just like, what the hell is this? Yeah, so so I think oftentimes like students are in that modality where they have nothing in their sort of um, experience that prepares them for something that isn't trying to cater to them. I mean, I don't need to tell anyone in this room, like, you know, the status of like critical listening needed to engage with popular music um, is not as like hard as like some of this 20th century music that, that we expose them to and now and now all right so to, to all the popular music people don't kill me out there there's certainly sophistication in a lot of that music too but um just in terms of meeting expectations about like baseline things like sounding pleasant or consonants and, and the use of consonances so a lot of times what students are first experiencing in those classes are this just radical like questioning of like, wait a minute, this is music? Like you're asking me to, to sort of engage with what I'm hearing in the same way that I engage with all these other things. And so um, asking them to just engage, uh, just question those assumptions, question those assumptions of like, well, what am I bringing to music? What are my expectations that I bring to music? Um, and the neat thing about um, this prompt is that 
especially students who have some breadth and other um, different artistic disciplines will say like, well, no, like it, it shouldn't always be pleasant. It should not, it should challenge you. It should do these things like that. And they almost become these kind of like evangelists for like, you know, progressive, like, you know, art that challenges you, like art should like, like challenge your ideas about things. And that's one of the functions that art can have in our society. And so, um, so having those kind of discussions in small groups break out is just, is just really wonderful because then, there's kind of on the side of, of like, you know, the pieces that you're talking about. It's like, well, I may not like it, but it's really important that someone could do things in that way. It's really important that like this utterance should be accepted as music so that we can um we can experience it and, and grow from it and learn from it in different ways. So um so yeah, yeah, it can have a really sort of reframing effect on on how people approached uh the semester and i did it, it actually we did this qft really early we did it like the i think it was the first or second week of classes so students were like right off the bat thinking about these issues of just like well what are my expectations what am i thinking about when i come to a new piece of music and am i feel like do i feel closed-minded when i sort of like identify these things that i just talk about normally and so it allowed a lot more openness about things like that i think um many of us who teach 20th century you get those like classes where you, you listen to a piece of music and someone like, ah, oh, this isn't even music. Like this is, how can you call it? This isn't even music. But we didn't get that, that term, right? Mm -hmm. So when I taught that semester, we didn't get these people sort of dismissing it as not music. They would just say things like, this isn't my favorite kind of music. <laughs> or they'd say like much more interesting critiques. It's like, you know, it's pretty interesting how they put it together. I don't know if I'd listen to this like on my Spotify playlist or anything like that, which, which to me is fine. Like I'll take that. <laughs> I have mentioned many times on the podcast that I do this thing called song of the day. And while you were talking about it, it reminded me that I, across the last few semesters, I've noticed this interesting phenomenon, which is that students are very bad at listening. Um, their first inclination is to do something else. So if I say I'm going to be silent for three minutes and we're going to listen to either this whole song or an excerpt or whatever of this piece, they immediately start texting their mom or writing down their to-dos for the day or talking to their neighbor. And I frequently have to be like, listen with your ears. You can't possibly listen with your mouth. Like, <laughs> you know, you're not listening. And I, I have thought that it might be useful to have, you know, some sort of conversation like, you know, you, you are musicians and I'm asking you to listen to music and your first inclination is to do something else. But as you were talking, I was thinking it would probably be much more effective to, to lead a discussion about that as a group. You know, the ways that we are encultured to at times ignore music versus at times pay attention to it and all sorts of things like that, I think. It's yeah, this is like such a cool time. We'd need another podcast to clearly talk about this. But yeah, like, like philosophy you know, brain is like, I can see it whew. spinning here, man. Oh my gosh. So like, but one of the things we know from cognitive science, right, is that like our brains are learning machines and how we use them trains them. Like little things and little decisions, everything we do. So, so in a way, when someone says like, oh, you know, I love to put music on in the background while I'm studying. Like what you're training your brain to do is not pay attention to the music that's going on in the background while you study. So I mean, I mean, I don't know. I, and there, and there's interesting studies that both support and and contradict that. But it's this idea about like you know training your brain to focus is something that's incredibly hard 
for many of our, our intro students and and putting up these distractions or these situations where you're you're practicing not listening carefully it's like that's how you've grown up like you know you put you put like music on in the car radio and you're having a conversation while you have or like you're at a party and you hear these things in the background and you ignore them in order to focus on these other things that are going on so it's it's really should be i mean there's there's fun books there's actually sort of things i'm getting a little read into so one is like the distracted mind like this is just like there's all this stuff about how how student attention is actually this miraculous thing. Um, James Lang uh, talks a bit about this, but this idea is just like the default mode for many of our students, like we assume like they come to class and they're gonna pay attention. It's like, well, no, actually the default mode is that they're like incredibly distracted with all of the things that are going on in their lives. And if we can achieve that moment where they're actually concentrating and focusing on something that we're doing, it's like, well, that's kind of this miraculous moment. Um, so um, one of the things uh, that the QFT does that's really great about that is again, this idea of leveraging small groups like if someone's upstage talking or like giving a lecture it's pretty easy to check your email like you don't have much required of you to do you don't have much that's sort of required of you to just be sitting sitting there passively if you're in a group of like two to three people and you start checking your email that's quite noticeable so like that level of engagement that's required even even if it's not like you know full attention like is, is much more sustained and much more sort of significant so yeah, but this whole idea of a distraction is something that I think educators should think much more carefully about because we often assume that like, you know, if you've, I've, I've lectured about this, therefore the students have learned that. And there's this wonderful uh -huh. gulf of a disconnect between those two <laughs> ideas, between like coverage and understanding or coverage and learning. So, yeah. Yeah. And just to back up what Phil is saying, uh, one of, so I taught a unit on timbre um, two times. The first time was sort of a more traditional uh, teaching method. I was doing lecture. I mean, students were going to small groups and chatting a bit, but it was more of a traditional kind of lecture situation. The second one, we used the QFT um, to talk about, I had not introduced them to uh, anything in the unit. This was, this was the first day of the unit. Um, they sat down and we played them excerpts, uh, videos of uh, Spectrogram and playing um, first a shakuhachi piece, a solo of shakuhachi, and then um, an excerpt from a piece by, I think, Giant Claw. <laughs> so like an electronic music piece. And, um, and then asked them to just, they had to come up with questions about what they had just seen. And... Um, I would say the first time I taught the class, the whole entire unit, like to get them to understand what a spectrogram was and to go through the whole thing, it took about maybe a day. This took maybe a day and a half. And what we decided to do is we had students actually, you know, figure out which they had to rank their questions and they could choose whatever their top three questions were. They then researched them during class as a group together and presented to the class their findings. And with just a little bit of extra time, they were doing this themselves. And one of the student reflections said specifically, I know I will remember <laughs> everything about this spectrogram. I'm going to remember this unit much better because I had to ask the questions myself. And I'll say those students are now seniors. 
And when I see them and we're chatting about things and they talk about, because it was a unique kind of a class. And when they talk about that class, one thing they always remember was the spectrogram unit. Like that comes up more often than not. So I think, I mean, and of course, this is just, you know, it's just a story. It's just anecdotal. But I, I do think that there is a definite difference in terms of them think, thinking about their own questions and their friends' questions and using that as a starting point. It occurs to me, we haven't asked you to go through the six steps. We haven't done that yet, have we? It might be, that might be good for people to hear, like, how do you yeah. do this in a class period? Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and hand that off to you. <laughs> nice, nice, nice tag. Um, so, all right. Um, so, so the QFT is actually starts out with students presenting a prompt or what's known, um, which referred to as a Q focus. And the cool thing, we can talk a little bit about this later, but it could be anything. Like it could be a text, it could be a score, it could be sound, it could be multimedia, it could be really anything that you want your students to engage with and think about. After that point, the instructor kind of steps back and students starts to take over. So what the students do is they produce questions according to four rules. So they sort of um, uh, have a series of rules that they have to follow in producing these questions. After they produced, and then oftentimes, and the last question is produce as many questions as you can. So it can you can get some fun and like healthy competition between groups saying like, you know what, they're up to 16 already. Well, we got to get more. So, so oftentimes that's this exciting moment in class where students are just like brainstorming, trying to come up with as many things as possible. After they come up with those questions, step three is for them to categorize and then manipulate their questions. Um, this is something that can be really helpful and especially for music educators to just think about the way that questions are worded how you word things can have a dramatic um, impact in sort of what answers you get back or even how you start to investigate the answers to those question like there's a that that cliche quote from einstein that basically says you know if i had to answer a question i would spend 95 percent of my time making sure that the question was like you know worded or constructed in the right way and then the last five percent i would actually go and try to solve it. Um, so it's this idea of really thinking carefully about qu how questions are worded, right? Once they've sort of manipulated some of their questions, once they sort of think about, think, thought about those things, then they go through and prioritize their questions. So this is the part where um, there's an option for an instructor intervention. So an instructor can basically say, categorize your questions or, or prioritize them according to this metric. Or you can, um, if you wanted to be more open-ended, um, just say like, categorize these questions as what you feel are the most important or the most interesting and the most relevant questions that you come up with. So as students remain in those groups, they then prioritize their questions and come up with usually like three or four questions out of a long list. I've had um, the most that I think I, I've experienced is I had one group come up with 80 questions. I can then approximately like 20 minutes and this is like a superstar group and they just came up with 80 questions so that was a really hard thing for them to sort of figure out what are these like what are the top three questions from that but um but usually the lists are, are shorter and it's not such a daunting task to sort of prioritize their questions the last two stages of the the qft um so step four was prioritizing questions step five is you use those questions so you take those prioritized questions and you somehow use those to drive learning you can bring them into class you can assign them as like extra credit projects depending and this is the part again where an instructor gets to negotiate um 
um, with the class according to their learning goals and really kind of figure out how these could be used to sort of fit in. Um, once those questions are used in, in whatever way an instructor decides, then the last step is for students to reflect on the process. And this is something that I think many um, Gosh, like many theory teachers could do more of asking students to kind of reflect on what they've done. There's a lot of evidence um, from studies that show like asking students to do things is great. They'll learn more than if you just tell them about things. But once they've done that thing, they also need to think about what they've done and reflect on what they've done to really cement that learning. It, um, the reflection process has this ability to make things much more sticky and allows them to kind of consolidate that learning in ways that if you don't have a reflection, it kind of it's 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 much easier for it to just be forgotten and kind of um and and not retained as students move forward. So that last step is actually getting students to reflect both on the questions they come up with and the content, but also the process that they used um, with the idea, hopefully, that they can transfer some of these um, things that they've done to other contexts as well. That's great. I, I one, one question I have is how does assessment fit within the QFD? How can you assess these different um, uh, sections of the QFT or or how does that play into it? This sounds great. I want my students to know these things. Um, I don't want to just cover them. I mean, we're all grading our final exams. And so we're getting to <laughs> getting a getting an experience of how much we really taught them. Right. <laughs> and so how does assessment play in with with, with this? So I think the activity itself, I have never used any kind of assessment. I haven't assessed, you know, how well the students actually did the QFT. Um, they do, I have had homework assignments that were based off of the questions that they generated and they get, they would get graded on those homework assignments. And of course, in the regular assessments for the unit, um, you know, despite the fact that we've talked about that students often will ask questions that we might not have originally covered, a lot of times they actually are asking the kinds of questions that we um, are hoping to talk about in the class as well. So um, those sorts of things come up in terms of their creative projects, whatever, whatever way you assess, whether it's a creative project or a paper or an exam of some kind or quizzes, um, you know, you're still assessing the learning the way you typically would. Um, you might need to ask questions in a slightly more open-ended way um, so that students, you know, depending on what kinds of questions they decided they wanted to investigate, um, you know, that they have, that there's some way of showing that that's what they learned about. And one of the other things, um... That's important to do so. So when you're doing the QFT the first time, like first time, very few students are going to be familiar with it. Um, and it's often a good idea to have these sort of check-ins. So uh, what we found is that doing the first four steps is very doable within a, a single class period. And especially um, if students are doing it multiple times throughout the semester, you can even do a little bit before and then have those four, four things. Um, uh, a few times we've used this with Google Docs. So we have students simultaneously editing a Google Doc and kind of like that's what they they need to produce at the end. So um, Google Docs have this wonderful like simultaneous editing and things like that. But it's also as an instructor, you can go in and sort of see like I've created this doc for you and like, you know, like I want you to put your questions in here. Um, and then a little bit what that does is so the students are doing things that they've never really done before. They know like your, te your teachers have told them to do it. And so they think like, OK, I'll probably get graded on this even though if you never end up like using that it's like the students don't know it at that point and so i'm a big fan of transparency and, and not like tricking students and um 
And actually, oftentimes, like, if there are students who are just not engaged with the process, like you, you can see that either in the classroom and walk over and sort of just ask them what's going on, or you can see that just in terms of like not participating in a Google Doc based on sort of the history and edits and things like that. Um, if you, if you wanted to dig into that material, um, but oftentimes, like uh, like Patricia said, like not making it high stakes, but these sort of low stakes thing. Like I'm asking you to participate in class by doing these things um, and giving kind of token. Uh, token uh, credit for for just completion, not not grading them on content per se, but just like having gone through the process, I think is is probably a good approach. If you do have concerns about students not being motivated, unless there is an assessment. Now, there's lots of good evidence that says like you really shouldn't. What impossible? Like you, you shouldn't have to rely on that assessment. The more you can get them to kind of think on their own and, and find intrinsic motivation to engage with things, like you'll get better engagement, better results. But you know, sometimes we live in a world where we we want to have like, you know, assessment as, as a backup for that. So there's certainly ways you could do that. Right. And I'll just mention that for a number of the classes where I was using the QFT um, in the times that I talked about in the article, uh, my class was actually ungraded. So during COVID, I experimented with ungrading and um, that really does open up a way for students to really, you know, when they're, um, when they're producing work that you're going to give them comments on, it's a lot more open and you can you can give them comments just about what it is that they've learned. And it doesn't have to be, um, you don't have to have like a single standard or learning outcome for every single student. And you all should probably invite Patricia back on the podcast without me, just so she could talk to you more about ungrading, because she's done wonderful work in that area. And, and she would, yeah, she's, she's, she gave a presentation at the last pet into practice. There's a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about there for sure. Yeah, and I get to talk to her about this stuff because, yeah, exactly. You know, I get to talk to her because she's my colleague. So it's wonderful. So I've already heard like a lot of this that she's saying, but yeah, it'd be great for, for her to share that stuff too. Well, Ben has currently 500 things he needs to grade, so he probably needs to learn more about ungrading. Um, <laughs> ben, yeah, I'm, like, I'm very interested in this topic, <laughs> so please come back. I will say it has not made grading periods easier. <laughs> so um, it actually, yeah. it, in a lot of ways, is a little bit more challenging. And I'm in the process right now of 30-minute interviews with all 47 of my students. <laughs> So where we where we talk about their work, they have a portfolio of work and we talk about it and then um, and then they assign themselves a grade um, for this their particular portfolio. Now, I could talk to you about standards-based grading, which actually is something that would increase in, in, in your efficiency and things like that, but that's another topic too. <laughs> oh, that's great. So I was actually wondering, Ben, what do you think about trying to implement QFTs in your 300-person music theory class? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and I know that most people are not confronted with that situation, but I do have 150 people in the room at once, and I love the small groups. I was trying to brainstorm what it would look like for me to do this in the, in the lecture hall, and I think the small groups would be good. I think it would get very loud. Um, and I think it would be quite the Google Doc, um, because you were saying 80 questions per group. I thought, oh my gosh, times 75 groups, that's a lot of questions. That's, you know, 600 some questions or something. So 
it would be quite an undertaking, but I don't think it's impossible. I, it seems like it's the kind of thing where there really aren't that many barriers. And I think y'all have done a good job of covering that. Like really, it's, it really has a lot of advantages. It's so accessible. That's probably something that I was going to bring up, but we just didn't get to talk to. But just to be able to tell people, brainstorm, ask questions, don't limit yourself. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown lately and just it's inspiring to open up people's minds. And what does it really mean to be included and feel included? It means making stuff that's not distancing anyone and really making everyone feel like they can just voice whatever it is um, that can will contribute undoubtedly. Um, and then, yeah, we covered kind of the back end as well, too, as far as how to actually implement it in a class and how it doesn't really affect the efficiency as much as you might think. It may be a little bit longer, but like it doesn't mean that it's not doable and it doesn't mean that it's not worth it, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I may adapt it a bit from what you have in the article, but uh, I'm on board even for 150 at a time. I, I think I'm I think I'm on board and I do on occasion, I will say. Um, some of the assignments that I've done have been more completion grade slash feedback pace, like the draft of a, we did compositions for movie trailers that came out around Thanksgiving. And I did the draft, which was just for feedback and it was completion based and it had prompts based on timbre, meter, melody, um, et cetera. So I've done similar things where it's just a completion or it's for the feedback really, but I still have to put a number on it sometimes. <laughs> but I love that yep. idea. I love that idea. Well, one of the ways that this really does work well, no matter what the class size is, is that each of the groups, they prioritize their questions. And so they're only giving you, you know, their top two or three questions. So in the end, you're not going to have this massive sheet and you can, you know, you can look at as many as, as you can handle looking at, you know, and I will say Phil's students were particularly curious. I think in all of his examples with the QFT, when we had, we listed in the article, we actually list how many total questions were produced in every class and um, his 20th century class, particularly, they seemed, they were very curious about many things. <laughs> Just not a bad thing. No, no this is the the irony was this is actually for my oral skills class, which wasn't um, I don't think it was the most effective use of what the QFT was, or my effective experience of the QFT. I didn't do it very well. But yeah, so this that was when that one group came up with 80. That's very anomalous. Typically, you get something in the realm of like, you know, 15 to 30 or so. That's much more typical. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah, love I wanted, that. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Patricia. Oh, sorry. I was also going to point out just one thing um, that I would also advise if you have time in the class, and this is something that I didn't do quite enough, is that when students actually reflect, um, I always had them do the reflections on their own outside of class. Um, but I think it's really valuable to have them come back together and actually talk about or share their reflections with one another. Um, because occasionally, you know, not every student loves this process. Uh, some students find it really intimidating. Um, and, you know, I, I would occasionally get some reflections where a student would say, and this was typically at the beginning. Now, I did have the same group of students for three semesters, and they experienced the QFT in all three semesters. So, um, so they got used to the idea and because I was doing ungrading and completely uh, changing um, how I was teaching, they were going along for the ride and they got used to that feeling of discomfort. But 
some of the initial responses were, I really prefer like just sitting and listening and taking my notes. And I think if I had actually had them sharing their experiences so they could hear in the same way that when they're generating questions in that stage of the Q of T, they're hearing each other's questions. I think having those conversations would allow them to air that discomfort and, um, and I think that just would have maybe helped them the second time around to be more excited about the QFT. And that goes back to some of the things we mentioned earlier about like Ferreira's banking model of education. If that's what you're used to, like the QFT does ask a lot more of you as a student. You have to do more work. You have to engage more. You have to actually participate in your learning and for some students it's like you know depending on how much they care about the subject it's like may it might not be feel like it's worth it to them um but yeah yeah it's so so it's a uh, it can be a challenge for some students but i think um one of the things that Patricia do too is like if you explain to them why you're doing things and again that idea of transparency of education like um if you could explain why you're going through this process oftentimes they'll respect it even if they don't prefer it yeah, that, that that engagement piece goes back to talking about how students listen, right? If they go through school not having to engage their brain much, right? Um, it can be very uncomfortable or disorienting, just like if they're not used to listening to music. And even I think about, you know, people who sing in a choir or play in a band, well, they only listen to their part. You want me to listen to the piano and the and the soprano and the alto? I mean, that's it goes all 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 around. Yeah, I thought, also yeah. think this just has them exercising a muscle <laughs> that they don't get to exercise enough. I don't know. I mean, I feel like when I was in graduate school, I felt really insecure about my ability to ask good questions. Um, and that's what I mean, as researchers, like we have to get good at asking questions. And so um, I think it can be I totally actually sympathize with the students who found um, some of this difficult to do. But I think they all recognized as they kept doing the activity that um, they were getting better at thinking about things and asking questions. And, you know, you'd have those pauses because the time, you know, they've asked the first questions that come to mind and then having to keep thinking and digging and, okay, well, let me think about this different aspect that I wasn't originally thinking about so I can formulate something, some kind of a question. Yeah, yeah I feel that way in every SMT always, afraid to ask a question. <laughs> I'd rather just make a comment than a question. <laughs> <laughs> you have many a good company in that in that group, I think, unfortunately. Uh, well, this has been such a treat. I mean, we this this has already been an hour, and I, this time has just flown by. But I know this is this is finals week for I think. Ben, Jen, and I, probably for you too. And so we got a lot of stuff going on. Um, so I want to respect your time. But before we go, we always like to do a little rapid fire session where uh, two double, right? So we have two guests. So where we ask uh, just some quick questions, just your little hot takes, you know, uh, short answers to um, short questions. So Ben or Jen, do you have a question? I'm ready. Okay, go for it, Jen. <laughs> what was your favorite prompt that you used for a QFT this fall? I actually did not use the QFT this semester. <laughs> oh, 
than last spring or whenever so, you guys used it. So I had um, I had one this fall. It was on the relationship between performance and analysis. So I I taught a graduate seminar where on performance and analysis, and we one of the role, purposes of the question is kind of just to suss out how people you know approach these two topics and how they relate them and how they think about them. So it was it was relating to performance and analysis. Yeah. Yeah, I would say actually that was my favorite one that I ever used was the performance and analysis one um, where I used quotes from different scholars about that relationship and they were contradictory or contrasting and students had to really think about um, what the value of analysis is. Mm. Mine was similar to what Jen just said. I was going to say what was the favorite topic for the to do a QFT, but maybe I'll just broaden it out and just say, favorite topic to teach yeah that's a really good one i'm enjoying so um so i'm teaching and uh i'm teaching a graduate seminar i just finished a graduate seminar this semester on performance and analysis and i'm doing a similar one next semester um, more focused on interpretation um and i'm really enjoying that one of the things we do uh, or what i'm doing in my classes is like bringing in some of the stuff by like robert levin and some other people about historical improvisation and i find that even graduate students just have so little familiar familiarity with some of these ideas so getting them to think carefully about like wow like i, I really want to sort of like play the game that mozart's playing like you know this these are things that happen during the style um and improvisation i think is something that allows a lot of the tools that we provide as music theorists to start making sense for performers like once you realize like oh i would have to improvise over this it's like well maybe i have to understand what's, what's going on with the music right now to do that successfully so i think improvisation is something that um i've enjoyed leaning into quite a bit um, the past few years this is going to sound crazy, but my initial response was, I love teaching the dominant seventh chord. <laughs> I'm really stuck yes. in the in the trenches of the theory core. <laughs> and honestly, when I think about how magical the dominant seventh chord is in common practice tonal music, I just get so excited. If I ever lose my spark of love for music theory, all I have to think about is the dominant seventh. And like, how is that? That's such a powerful engine. But... Um, if I think outside of that, I love teaching about timbre and texture together. Um, it allows me to engage with so many different genres of music. Um, I love talking about physical properties of sound and seeing them on spectrograms and talking about um, how composers are using different instruments. I think it's really fun. Yeah. David Newman, are you listening? Soul T. Ray Falls. The <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the the dominant seventh song. That's right. <laughs> you might be listening. I don't know. <laughs> All right. My question is, um, what was your favorite band when you were a teenager or artist? Because I always find that interesting, especially talking to academics. Like it's still oftentimes the, you know, the the typical pop pop artist or band. So what was it? You know? Yeah, great question. I'll give you I'll give you two. So um so as a drummer, I was really into Smashing Pumpkins, which was like this, like, you know, like alternative rock band that actually was it was a lot of fun. But um, in terms of classical repertoire, my first sort of like fall in love with and like really explore was were the Chopin Nocturnes. So I just really got into that music. I even I wasn't even a pianist at the time, but I was just like, this is so amazing. These like pieces are really like uh, desert island stuff. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was a diehard Cure fan. <laughs> 
really, really love The Cure. Um, and then also just really love romantic piano music. So Chopin was also a first love of mine. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of the preludes and the nocturnes, because those were some of my first sort of bigger pieces that I got to play. Yeah, there's something about Chopin too. Chopin was one of my earliest favorite composers. Something about his music is it's it's virtuosic yes yet also tuneful and there's something that is really powerful about uh, his music um but this was just great we just loved having you on here and uh we can't uh urge you listeners enough to go check out this article um it has so much good information and so many great ideas i think that could be implemented across across the theory and our skills board uh but as we wrap up can maybe just let our listeners know where they can find you on the internet and uh, what you have uh, cooking uh, as far as other projects. Okay, yeah. Um, so I'm not very good on social media. I have Twitter and Facebook accounts, but they are largely dormant. Um, so the best way to get in touch with you is by email. So first initial P, last name Duker, D-U-K-E-R at U-D-E-L dot E-D-U. So that's email, um, best way to get in touch. Um, in terms of projects I'm working on, there's there's actually, yeah, so relevant to this podcast. So I'm writing an article actually separate from music theory completely on problem-based learning and kind of like uh, learning goals and how, how those sync together. Um, more relevant, um, I have a project uh, that I'm working on on an error detection website. Um, so this is kind of like one of these holes in the discipline, like, you know, error detection is like this practical skill that's really hard to teach and train, and we don't have many good practice resources on it. So I'm, um, I'm, I worked with a group of computer scientists to kind of create a tool and we, we built it. It's great. Um, I actually, and I've actually like talked to some collaborators about, um, hopefully getting more work and more time to devote to just creating a, um, our more robust library of, of exercises on error detection. Um, yeah, so those are kind of two projects that are going to keep me busy for the next foreseeable future. Yeah, and I am on Facebook, but I use that mostly personally. So um, so it's best to get in touch with me by email as well. Um, it's pbert at udell.edu. And uh, my projects that I'm working on right now have to do with, um, I'm writing up an article, another pedagogy article on um, analysis of large-scale design. So approaches to teaching large-scale design in the first semester uh, theory curriculum, because I feel like um, a lot of times we start with like, this is one in five instead of, and so students are looking at these small details instead of mm -hmm. thinking about pieces. And also a lot of the things we're teaching one in five, well, in a lot of the ensemble music that they're playing, uh, and, and the ensembles they're playing, the music actually doesn't necessarily work that way. So this allows them to start thinking about theory um, as being relevant to them right off the bat. And um, my other area of research is I, I came up with a method for analyzing registral space or spatial design of a piece. And so I'm working on an article that's uh, looking, that's sort of talking about that, um, about that method and applying it. You just made it to the end of another episode of Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and review the podcast, and you can always reach us at notedoctorspodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or show ideas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>